Um, if you guys do have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are continuing our study of Colossians, just preaching verse by verse uh, through this book of the Bible. And uh, as you're turning there, um, I want to share a little bit about uh, an Easter Day parade in the year 1929 in New York City, okay? Something would happen at this parade that would go unnoticed by many people, uh, but it would actually have a huge impact specifically on women for the next 100 years or so. You see, what was going on in that time was that the American Tobacco Company, up until that point, had really only been able to sell uh, cigarettes to men. And uh, they were seeing this problem. They were seeing this huge issue of trying to get more women to smoke cigarettes because there was this kind of social stigma around women smoking, and therefore most women just didn't want to even try a cigarette. And so the American Tobacco Company, they ended up hiring a guy named Edward Bernays, who ended up becoming kind of the, the, the father of public relations, uh, who had learned to uh, master the art of propaganda during the First World War. And what they did was they hired him to develop a plan to try to get women to smoke more cigarettes. And so what Bernays did was he attached the agenda of the tobacco industry to the women's liberation movement that had gotten some momentum in the country, which much of that movement was a good thing, right? It got, it got uh, women the right to vote in 1920, which we would say is a good thing. We're glad women have the right to vote. But what Bernays did was at this parade, okay, he got uh, uh, the media to show up. He got newspaper uh, cameras to kind of all get lined up. And then what he did was he had some uh, young, attractive women get into the parade, and right when they got in front of the cameras, he had them all pull out these cigarettes and start smoking, okay? And he told the, the newspapers to call these cigarettes torches of freedom, all right? That's what they were called in the media. They were called torches of freedom, and then he pumped newspapers and magazines full of ads, kind of linking the concept of women's rights with uh, cigarettes and smoking. And so, for example, there was an ad uh, in, in one of the magazines that we maybe have up, right, that says, believe in yourself, <laughs> right? Women, believe in yourself. Smoke a cigarette, right? They're trying to link kind of this, the women's empowerment movement with smoking a cigarette, and so by all appearances, right, it sort of seems like Bernays and the tobacco industry, they really love women, right? They must be like for women, except get this. Bernays did not allow his own wife to smoke cigarettes, which is, which is sort of ironic in a couple of different ways. One, that he was not allowing her to smoke, and two, that he was not allowing her to smoke these things that he was trying to push to everyone else. So the question is, did he really love women? Were these things really linked together out of a love for women? Well, for the last 50 years, approximately 70,000 women a year die from lung cancer or smoking-related illnesses. So the question is, did he really love women? Did the tobacco industry really love women, even though they promised them these torches of freedom? And sadly... What promised these women freedom actually ended up enslaving them and eventually killing them. And the point of me even bringing this up is to not talk about smoking. I don't care if you smoke, okay? 
But it's this concept of, of today, because today we're going to talk about husbands and wives, all right? And we, we come to a passage in the Bible that addresses husbands and wives. And over the next two, week, we're, two weeks, we're going to talk about just relationships with one another, right? So next week, uh, you know, we're talking about kids obeying parents and whatnot. But church, this is what is happening to our relationships. God has shown us what will lead to human flourishing in regards to the roles of husbands and wives, and yet we are being bombarded with movies and TV shows and commercials and and ads that would promise us torches of freedom if we would only abandon our God-given callings as husbands and wives. We're being called to really even abandon the idea of men and women. And so we come to these verses that Kevin just read, and uh, honestly, they can seem right initially a little outdated, uh, maybe a little offensive, because our culture has promised us better relationships if only we would abandon kind of some of these traditional roles of husbands and wives. Our culture has said, in fact, let's just kind of throw out this concept of gender all together. You be whoever you feel like you want to be, not who God has called you to be. And we've been told that this will make life better, right? We've been told that this progress will lead to more human flourishing. We've been told that this would lead to better relationships for us. And so my question for us is, as we start out, is like, has it? No, yeah, I mean, like, like this is such a hard topic to even come, because to, to talk about because we all come into this with some, with some marriage baggage, okay? I think every person, every man, woman, and child in here has been affected in some degree by, by either a broken marriage or an abusive marriage or, or a marriage that was not ideal. And so we, we all come into this with some baggage as some collateral damage and wounds have been, been suffered by all of us. But we've been told and promised something better. We've been promised these torches of freedom if we would just turn from God's design and God's ways for us. And all you have to do is look around and see that, like, this is not working. This is not working. But you see, this is what sin does. Sin promises you something that it cannot fulfill. And in the end, it ends up then enslaving you. Okay? Sin promises you torches of freedom, but then oppresses you in the end. And so what we need this morning is we need our relationships to be redeemed. We need Jesus to help us turn back to what God calls us to, specifically as husbands and wives. And listen, this morning I realize not all of us are married. We have single people. We have kids. Like, I understand this is not directly applied to all of us, but I believe that all of us need to hear this this morning, okay, for a few reasons. Number one, many of you uh, will possibly get married later on, okay? Many of you kids might grow up, if that be the Lord's will, and get married. But you also need to hear this, number two, is because... Because you need to know how to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ who are married. You need to know what God is calling them to as a husband and as a wife. If you're going to walk alongside them as a friend to encourage them and to help them continue to mature in Christ. And number three, all of us need to hear it this morning because marriage is ultimately pointing us to the union of Christ and his church. And therefore, we must understand what God calls husbands and wives to so that we can fully appreciate and fully understand Christ and the church. 
But listen, I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to get into this one uh, because growing up in the culture that we've all grown up in, living in America in the year 2020, I do not want to read that first verse that Kevin just read, Colossians 3 verse 18, uh, because that's not how I would have written it. But I have to submit myself to God's word here as we all should this morning. And we have to believe that God's ways are not our ways. And his ways are actually better. His ways are better. So let, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help as this is a, this is a difficult passage. Uh, Father, we, we do need your help this morning. Lord, help us believe that this truly is your word. Uh, Lord, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we do believe your ways are better, uh, but it's so easy for us, Lord, to grab on to, to our own ways and think that we know better than you. God, I do ask that you would use this time to strengthen us as a people, as a church. Lord, that this would strengthen our, our marriages, that this would strengthen all of us, to, to, that, that we would grow in a desire to know more of you and it would stir up in us a love for you. Lord, we do ask that you would continue to be with our, our world and our country and our, our governmental leaders, God, that you would give them wisdom and discernment as they lead and make decisions. Lord, we do ask that you would bring about healing, that you would bring about justice and peace. And Lord, we ask that you would um, give us wisdom as we walk in your ways, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Colossians 3, verse 18. I'll read it again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Followed by verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, now before you either dismiss this passage or before you abuse this passage, okay, we need to, we need to talk and try to understand it. And admittedly, that is what happens in a lot of cases. We either dismiss this passage as something that is outdated or just for kind of the, the culture back then. It's not really applicable to our day and age, and we just kind of dismiss it. Or then you have a group of people in the church that would take this passage to abuse it and to somehow uh, kind of justify like a, dominate, a domineering dictatorship in the household. And both of those views are incorrect. Okay? And so us as believers, if we believe this is God's word, we cannot dismiss it, but we also want to study it and have a proper understanding of it so that we do not abuse it. Okay? And we do believe that his ways are better than our ways. And in order for us to understand these verses, and in order for us to understand his ways are better than our ways, uh, I'm going to go through seven points in the sermon this morning. I'm usually a three-point guy, uh, but you guys look like you needed some more points this morning, so we're going to go seven, all right? But we'll go through them quick. Uh, but number one, the first point, is that we need to understand the original context in which Paul is writing this. The second point will be we'll need to understand how sin has distorted our relationships. The third point will be we need to understand what biblical submission is. Followed by the fourth, we need to understand what biblical submission is not. And then the fifth point will be we need to understand that biblical submission goes hand in hand with the, with the call that God gives for husbands to love their wives and not be harsh with them. We'll then need to understand how Jesus sets the example for us in both submission and love. And in verse 7, we'll see then how both of these callings must be pursued by faith, trusting that God's ways are better than our ways. Okay? 
we'll move through these points quick. I promise we will be uh, hopefully not too long. All right, first point, understand the original context into which Paul is writing this letter, okay? This is first century. This is the city of Colossae in the Roman Empire. Uh, and in the city, there are uh, Jews that live there, Gentiles, Greeks that live there. And uh, William Barclay, who's a Scottish theologian back in the 1900s, I'm going to read a quote from him that we'll have up on the screen. He kind of paints the picture as to what the original audience who would have been hearing these words, where they would have been at, Okay. So he writes, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right, whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights, whatever, in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go marketing. She lived in the women's apartments and did not join her menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all privileges belong to the husband and all duties to the wife. Now, I'm going to read that last sentence again, and men, please do not amen this or make any noises, okay? Under Jewish and Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. Now, that's not saying how it should be, okay? That's just saying how it was, okay? And so listen, we read this, we read this phrase, wives submit to your husbands, and and we kind of blush a little bit, right? Like it seems maybe a bit old fashioned. We're a little afraid of being labeled like a woman hater or an oppressor of women or something like that. But the fact that Paul even addresses the women is really a pretty radical, progressive thing, okay? Uh, Many people hearing this letter for the first time when he wrote this, many of them that were assembled viewed their wives as their possessions. They viewed their children and slaves as possessions. And what we see in this passage is that Paul addresses them like he you, you don't address possessions, okay? And so this is actually not a demeaning thing by Paul at all. He's actually acknowledging women. He's acknowledging children and then slaves in this passage later on. He, he's, he's not considering them possessions, but he's actually acknowledging their personhood. Paul is recognizing them and addressing them. Because listen, submission is not subjugation. And that's where we have to draw a distinction, okay? Subjugation turns a person into a possession. And that is what the women of the first century were experiencing. All they knew was subjugation. They were being forced into and underneath their husband's authority. Whereas submission is a a voluntary, a heartfelt yielding to someone's leadership. And so this is pretty radical because the women were being addressed and acknowledged by Paul and they were being called to something better than subjugation. They were being called to submission. And Jesus had this same posture as well. Like he, he always welcomed and greeted women and he was friends with women and he loved and cared for women and he acknowledged their personhood. And so this is a radical thing. This would not have been taken as a demeaning thing. 
And this is also pretty radical in this context because then he gives husbands a command and a duty as well. He tells the husbands to love their wives and do not be harsh to them. Like for us, I realize that's the verse this morning that's not as controversial, right? I think everyone's like, yeah, husbands love your wives. That's a good thing, right? You should do that. But in this time, this was like a novel concept. Like that, that would have really hit people. That would have been the controversial one out of these two verses, okay? That would have been the one people were like, what? Like I'm supposed to love my wife. And, and see, this was a novel concept as Christianity started to spread through the world. Because look, it's ultimately not Christians who are teaching on roles for men and women who are the ones oppressing women. You look around the world to places the gospel has not gone yet, to places where the kingdom of God is not celebrated yet, and those will be the places where the women are the most oppressed and treated like possessions. What we see is that where Christianity goes, that women are acknowledged, their personhood is celebrated, they are equal image bearers of God along with men. And so what Paul is doing here in the original context is not a demeaning thing at all. He's acknowledging women and he is challenging then men to love their wives. So that's point number one, understanding the original context. But point number two is we need to understand how sin has distorted our relationships. Because listen, in these commands for wives to submit and husbands to love, what he's doing here is he's revealing and acknowledging a problem that sin has created in the human heart. And so to understand this problem, we have to go back to the beginning. All right, so if you got your Bibles, turn back to Genesis it's the first book in the Bible, and we're going to start in Genesis 1, verse 26. All right, Genesis 1, verse 26. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, here we learn that God creates men and women, right? Male and female. He creates them both, meaning they are, they are set apart, and he creates them both in the image of God. All right, this is separating human beings from any other created thing, right? We were created in such a way that we can enjoy a relationship with God because we are created in his likeness, and we've been created to exercise his dominion over creation, to be representatives of his rule and reign in the earth, to reflect his goodness and glory to his creation. And we see in this passage that, that we have been made male and female, which which starts to clue us in that, in fact, God has, yes, made us equal in dignity and worth as image bearers, but also different, and that our differences should complement one another, that men and women will need one another in order to carry out this call to fill the earth and subdue it. Neither one of them can do this on their own. They're going to need one another. Flip to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 gives us a bit more detail into this male and female situation, all right? Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Okay, now before... Ladies, you start to feel that that word helper is a demeaning thing, all right, which I understand in our English language and in our current context, the word helper can seem a bit uh, demeaning or like it's an inferior thing. That is not the case when God is using it. Because listen, later in the Bible, God uses this word helper to describe himself as a helper of his people, okay? And God does not demean, he's not derogatory towards himself. So when we use, see this word helper, that's not God creating some superior and inferior thing, but it is separating out two different roles, okay? God had put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it and to cultivate it and to protect it. And up until this point, God sees everything and it is good. But after he gives Adam this responsibility of not only obeying his word to not eat of this certain tree, uh, God sees and knows that it is not good for him to be alone. Right? God gives Adam this responsibility and then sees it is not good for him to be alone. He needs a partner or a helper for this. Yes, it's his responsibility, but he's going to need help. And all the ladies who knew a man that needed some help said, Amen. All right. So up until this point, right, life is good. Life is good. Adam's given the responsibility to lead in obeying God's word, and he's to work the garden and cultivate it, and Eve is to come alongside and as a partner and a helper in this, and they're both to alongside one another, essentially Edenize the world, right? They're to exercise God's reign and rule throughout his creation. So up until this point in Genesis 2, there would be no need of any command for women to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives, right? Like that's, that command's not even needed because a problem hasn't been created yet, right? But then sin enters. Genesis 3. Turn to Genesis 3. What we see is that Adam neglects his responsibility in protecting and keeping the garden. The serpent enters, deceives Eve while Adam complacently stands by. And Adam and Eve then both disobey God's word, only then to play the blame game to whose fault it really was. And then God comes and speaks to them in Genesis 3, verse 16. And he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I think you mothers can testify that is true. This is, that is a true thing. He then goes on to say, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I think the ESV is a little bit, I, I love the ESV in general, but it's a little clunky here for our understanding at getting at what the original is saying. And so up on the screen, we'll have the New English translation. I think it makes it a little clearer as to what he's saying. God says, because of sin, ladies, he says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Now, listen, this isn't necessarily prescriptive. This is descriptive, okay? God's not saying this is how he wants things to be. He's saying that, hey, now because sin is in the mix, now because sin is in your heart, you've turned from my ways, there's going to be this sinful struggle between you two in your relationship. Like, wives, this is what's going to happen because of sin. Wives, you will want to control your husband, 
You will want to sinfully try to manipulate and subvert the leadership and the responsibility God has given him. Right? You're, you're going to want to try to push against his leadership. You're going to want to like play mind games with him. You're going to try to cut him down with your words. You're going to try to turn his decisions so that you can get what you want. You're going to want to badmouth him to your friends and to your kids so that you can appear like the superior spouse. He's saying this is what's going to happen because of sin. These things are going to happen. This isn't how it should be, but this is what's going to happen because of sin. This is what, ladies, you need to be rescued from, what Jesus needs to redeem you from. Because wives, listen, you controlling your husband will look like to you like a torch of freedom. Right? Like if you could just control your husband, then it would promise, it would give you the promise of a better life and a happier marriage. And in the end, that desire to control your husband only ends up enslaving you and causing a struggle and a joyless marriage. But then God in Genesis 3 turns to the husbands and hey and says, Hey, For you guys, now because of sin, you will now try to dominate your wife. And typically this plays out in a couple of different ways, depending on the guy's personality. One personality will try to dominate by being aggressive and kind of exerting their strength or their dominance in the relationship. But other men dominate by their complacency and just checking out and, and not being present at home. And we see, this, we see this play out. I would imagine every person in here probably has some degree of some daddy issues uh, where you've either had like a domineering dictator in the home or you had a complacent couch potato in the home or you had a, a guy that maybe just abandoned his post altogether like Adam did and he was just gone. He was just absent. But you'll notice, even in the absence of the father or the husband, that absence still dominates the home life. That empty chair at the dinner table still dominates the life of the wife and the children. I mean, you ask anyone that's kind of grown up without a father or a dad, and you ask them about their childhood, most of the times they start with, hey, my dad left. He wasn't there. And next week, we're going to talk about parenting and and, and children, and we're going to talk about how a lot of the problems in our world is, is coming from a majority of people not having a father. But here's the problem. We've kind of set the stage because of sin. In our sin, wives are going to try to control their husbands. Husbands are going to try to dominate their wives, either by domineering or complacency or abandonment. And this is the problem. That we, because of our sin, we now essentially view our relationships in marriage as like a cage match. <laughs> right? Like, like we're going to fight one another for control, and only one of us is coming out of this thing alive. <laughs> That's what it feels like, right? When we get into an argument, or we get into a conflict, and some people just getting into a marriage, hey, like, only one of us is coming out of this. And guys, let me tell you, I take care a lot of, of a lot of older people at the hospital. If you view your marriage like a cage match and only one of you comes out of this, listen, typically the, the guys die first, okay? The women outlast us in the end if this is a cage match. So turn back to Colossians 3. Because now we need to understand what biblical submission is. We understand the problem. We understand why Paul even has to give us a command at all. But now we need to understand what it is because Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 19. 
Now, first of all, he does not say that women need to submit to men. Okay, and so this is not a mandate for all women to submit to all men. That would be an abuse of this verse. Uh, but he's specifically calling a wife to submit to her husband. But he, excuse me. All right, so now what does this word submit mean? And uh, one of the best, uh, kind of most concise definitions I think I could give you would be this. Biblical submission is a voluntary yielding to leadership. Okay? It's a voluntary yielding to leadership. It's voluntary. This isn't subjugation, right? This isn't that context that these women were living in here where they're being forced under kind of authority and control. This is a voluntary placing yourself under leadership. And it's not just a call that the Bible gives to just wives. It's a call in many different aspects of life that all of us are called to some degree of submission, of yielding and placing ourselves under leadership. So moving on to point four, I think will help us understand uh, uh, what biblical submission is by understanding what biblical submission is not. Okay, so let's now talk about what biblical submission is not. Submission does not always equal obedience. Okay, in in this passage, Paul's going to go on to say, children, uh, say, children, obey your parents. All right, so these are two different terms that are usually overlapping. Typically, submission does look like obedience, but it's not always the case. A submission is a yielding to leadership, but it's not with like a blind obedience of that you just do whatever this person in leadership says. Submission is a posture of yielding, but not with a blind obedience that's not using your brain and thinking about this. And John Piper, he wrote an article on Desiring God talking about what biblical submission is not. And um, you can certainly look it up to find more info. But a couple of points he says. He says, number one, that submission is not agreeing on everything. Submission is not agreeing on everything. Okay, so wives, I know many of your husbands. You should not agree with them on everything. (laughs) I give you that permission. It's okay. Like submission does not mean you agree on everything. Okay? Your first allegiance is to Christ. Your first allegiance is to God's word. But then even in things that are not sin issues, there's sometimes some gray area and you might not always agree on them. Now, now for Brittany and I, as I'm trying to lovingly lead her, when we have something we don't agree on, that's usually a sign that we both need to kind of pump the brakes a little bit to slow down the decision making. We both need to spend some more time in prayer. We both need to spend some time getting wise counsel from other people. And typically what the Lord does is over kind of slowing that time frame down a little bit, in the end, our hearts usually align eventually, and we usually do come to an agreement on something. But biblical submission does not mean that you have to agree on everything. Number two, biblical submission does not mean that you do not try to influence your husband. Okay, wives, you should be an influence on your husband. Brittany is probably one of the biggest influences I have in my life, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what we have to differentiate is what is influence and what is manipulation. All right? And I think at the heart of it, it has to do with what your motivation is. Are you wanting to influence and point your husband to Christ? Or are you trying to manipulate to get what you really want? 
And I think that's where you have to check your heart motivation. But submission does not mean that you do not have an influence on your husband. You most certainly do. Biblical submission is also not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. All right, you have an ultimate authority that you are to look to, and it's King Jesus. Your husband is not your king. Your husband is not the ruler or dictator of your house. You submit to the will of Christ before you submit to the will of your husband. And Piper then in his article, he goes on to to give a little bit more of extended definition. He says, submission is the calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. And so we have to understand some of these unhealthy views of biblical submission and what they are not. But now moving to point number five, we need to understand that this goes hand in hand with another calling that God gives to husbands. Look back at Colossians 3 verse 19. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Right? We learned because of sin that most husbands are either going to lean towards a domineering or controlling mentality, or they're going to check out into like complacency land, uh, and, and, and where they're just going to be either physically or emotionally absent. And remember who Paul then is writing this to, first century Jews and Gentiles who wa- whose wives were considered property. And Paul speaks into this reality, and he says, husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. And this is a high calling. This is a high calling. Men, he does not call you to necessarily love your job or to love your hobbies or to love your sports. He calls you today to love your wives. And he goes into this even a bit more detail in his letter to the Ephesians, which is also known as the twin epistle of Colossians, all right? Ephesians is like the the Patrick to the Colossians penny, okay? They're twin epistles here. So look at uh, Ephesians 5, verse 25. He writes, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so let me give you a few points of emphasis in thinking about how to love your wife like Christ loves the church. Number one, Christ loves the church intentionally. He was intentional. He was purposeful. Like Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it wasn't just something that kind of just happened organically. It wasn't just something that happened when he got around to it. Right? There was some intentionality. He took the initiative to take the form of man, to put on flesh, to come to earth, and to redeem his people from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Husbands, be intentional with how you love your wife. Be purposeful. Take the initiative. Like, what are you doing today and tomorrow and the next day to deliberately and purposely love your wife? This is a command from God. Number two, Christ loves the church sacrificially. Christ loves the church sacrificially. He laid down his life for the church. He gave himself up for her. 
And in the same way that a wife will try to kind of manipulate to get what she wants, husbands, we will be tempted to love our wives in order to get what we want. And that is not the love that we have been called to. We have been called to a sacrificial love that we are willing to lay down everything, including our lives, for our wife. Christ loves the church sacrificially. Number three, Christ also loves the church by hearing them. Get this, our God is a listening God and he hears the prayers of his people. Husbands, are you loving your wives by listening to them? Like really listening to them. Not like the smile and nod. Like, right, I've, I've gotten good at that. The smile and nod. Uh, some of you have noticed, usually if you talk to me before uh, Sunday's gathering, I'm thinking about the sermon and things. I'm just smiling and nodding. We can get good at this. Smiling and nodding. That is not really listening. And many of our communication problems in marriage stem from a husband not really listening and trying to then go out and lead your wife before you have actually listened to her. Okay, men, men, write this down. This is like the bumper sticker thing that you need to take with you. If you try to lead your wife before listening to her, you are not loving her. If you try to lead her before listening to her, you are not loving her. And the Bible would actually say you're being foolish. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Much of our leadership can be explained as foolishness and shame when we don't first hear and we don't first listen. Number four, Christ loves the church by praying for them. Right now, Jesus is interceding for his people with intercessory prayer. Husbands, are you praying for your wife? The command to love your wife is the command to pray for her. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. And then, really, this is the same command, but he follows it then up in verse 19, which says, uh, he says in the same command, he says, do not be harsh with them. Or do not get embittered or resentful towards them. Do not be aggressive or complacent with them. Do not be harsh with them. And this harshness can look differently for different people, okay? Some of you guys are way too harsh with your wives with how you speak, how you use your words. Right? You, you, you speak to them like you would one of your buddies. Which I don't know about you, but a lot of my friends, like the way we show love to one another, so we sort of make fun of one another and tease one another. And uh, I, I don't know why that's the case, but that's, that's how we show love to one another. Okay, that is not how you show love to your wife. Some of you men are too harsh with your words, with your wife. Some of you men are too harsh with how you handle your money. Like some of you guys are just stingy. And you're being harsh with your wife by not being generous with her. Some of you guys are harsh with your wives with your time. You're stingy with your time. You're willing to give your time to anyone and everything that would ask of it except your wife. She has to like fight for your time. 
Whereas everyone else can shoot you a text and all of a sudden they've got your 10 to 15 minutes responding to a text or responding to a post and your wife's sitting right next to you and you're neglecting her. And some of you men are being too harsh with your wife with your attitude, your posture when you enter the home. When you come home from work, there's kind of just this attitude that, hey, like, don't mess with dad, right? He's in a bad mood. Instead of being gentle and kind, like we learned a couple of weeks ago, is what kingdom clothes we need to be putting on as followers of Jesus. Many of us are harsh in our homes. Now, listen, church, these are high callings. All right, these are high callings. Uh, And really, in our own strength, these are impossible callings. But thankfully, we have an example to follow who perfectly obeyed in every area that we could not. And so we got to leave here this morning. We got to understand how Jesus sets the perfect example for both men and women in regards to submission and love. Okay? Because Jesus, who was equal with the Father in dignity and worth, still submitted to the will of the Father in the garden as he pleaded with the Father to remove the cup from him. And yet, what did he conclude? Not what I will, but what you will. Wives, there will be times when you are trying your best to yield to the leadership of your husband and you've talked and he's heard you and, and, uh, and you're trying to let him lead but it just seems like his will is not what you want and your wills are not aligned. Now listen, if it's a sin issue, you call that fool out, right? You call, you name that sin and you call it out. But if it's not a sin issue and you're trying to obey the Lord and yield to him, just remember that you have a faithful high priest who was tempted in every way as you are and agonized to the point of sweating blood, but he did perfectly yield to the will of the Father. Jesus also sets the perfect example for us husbands as he perfectly loves his people as he loved his disciples by washing their feet even when they were undeserving. He loved Peter even though he denied him three times. And he ultimately went to the cross and bore the sins of an undeserving people. You see, Jesus is our perfect example of submission and love. But not only that, his obedience has now been credited to us who have trusted in him. And he has now sent to us the spirit to empower us to obey by faith. Because here's point number seven. Here's our last point, okay? Ultimately, husbands and wives are to obey these calls, not because our spouses have earned it or deserved it, but because God has required it. Your spouse does not deserve you to do what you are being called here to do. Right? Both, both spouses, right? I, ultimately, you both could have done better, right? Like, neither one of you deserve this, right? Neither one of you have earned this. But that is not why we obey these calls. We don't wait for our other spouse to really earn and deserve this. No, we obey these calls because it's what God has called us to. And we believe and trust that his ways are better than our ways, even when they don't always make sense to us. And we obey these commands ultimately out of a faith and service to Christ. Because look back at Colossians 3, and we'll cover these verses in more detail next week. 
But he goes on to say, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You're not ultimately even serving your spouse. We obey these commands because we believe that this is what God has called us to, and we step out by faith, trusting that we are ultimately serving Christ. But then you watch as you serve Christ. You watch as he will then redeem and rescue your marriage. Husbands, you watch as you love your wives as Christ loved the church. You watch how much easier and freer it will be for them to then yield and come under your leadership. And wives, you watch as you yield to the loving leadership of your husband. You watch how more eager and willing he will be to sacrificially love and lead you. And what a beautiful dance and cycle this can then create in our relationship as husbands and wives where we're not trying to battle one another for dominance, but we're figuring out how to dance this dance of marriage together. (laughs) You see, marriage is not supposed to be like a cage match, but instead a dance where we are both on equal ground and God has called the man to lead And as we dance, we get to enjoy being in step with one another and dancing to the music that our Creator plays for us. Both of these callings are equally important callings. And we have to pursue both through faith in Christ, knowing that we are ultimately serving Him. So let's pray.